hey, so uh, as I tend to do mid-conversation, mid, hey, what's up? I'm like, oh, wait a second. Yo, this should be on the fucking podcast shit that we're doing. Like, I listened to Joe Rogan yesterday after his $100 million thing. And like, I, I thought, you know, I, I assumed that there's like some format and some, yo, Joe Rogan spends 10 minutes introducing ads at the beginning. Like the top is just ads for 10 minutes. And then he just like, I would listen to the Pat Nozzle and they just like shoot shit for like 40 minutes until they get into any topics. And that's like the show. So like what we're doing right now, where it's like, what's up? Oh, you're at this place. Oh, cool. What's going on there? And we're actually talking about like irrelevant shit. But like, that's the shit that people pay $100 million for. So I was like, oh, I'm talking about I just experienced in Correas in Mexico. And the dynamics around, you know, people... Uh, uh, so I've, I've referred to this a couple of times and I'm telling Jeff, so, so Jeff Bratton, founder of Cassine and manager of, of a few acts that we'll get into, um, New York slash LA slash a couple other places, but the New York LA dialogue is going to be super important. That's going to be the meat of this conversation, I suspect. Uh, but we were talking about, you know, I'm in Correas and we've all been here. Like most of the people, like if, if, everyone should have been here by like March 24th is like kind of like if, if you, if you weren't here by like mid March, you know, late March, like something is wrong. Something's weird. I was here by March 9th or 10th. Forget. Um, so we just had a market for the first time and I like had friends over last night and yeah, like we're hugging and kissing at this point. Cause you only see people. There's like a hundred people in this group of like safe people, you know? And, and we've seen yeah. them now for a, for a couple weeks. And yeah, like we're all abiding by the same rules. Um, if I see someone I don't recognize, I'm, a, I'm weirded out. I'm like, they should, you know, that's weird. Um, like, who is this person? <laughs> you know, why are they here? And then the other thing that was a little, a little, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I need to think about it. But people were, so we did locals, like the local bread baker, some people made desserts, uh, people made juices and uh, different milk things, whatever. It was all really good uh, local great. products. And um, some people came and wore masks. And like, you're in this group of people who have been here for three months or you're not showing up. So I was a little like confused by the people who wore masks because it's kind of like you're either in like you're either safe and you trust that everyone else is safe or you self-isolate that that's me. I'm binary with this shit. You know, it's either like, I don't go anywhere near you. I don't go anywhere near anyone, which I did for over two months. I didn't talk to anyone. I had one person, my chef, that was the only, who I didn't touch. I who wore a mask and gloves in my house and she did her shopping for me, my shopping. And that was it. I didn't talk to anyone. And I've just opened myself up to specific people. But it's kind of like I made the decision that like I'm all in on those people. So like if someone like came to my house in a mask, I'd be like, why are you coming to my house at all? You know, like, I don't know. So the mask is a weird thing because we're, we're completely isolated and you're either yeah, like safe or you're not. I don't know. Yeah, you would think that that level of trust is established amongst the immediate community. If y'all exactly. know you can been in quarantine so to speak and sort of respecting the parameters of that mm -hmm. you should be able to socialize with each other 
without some of the precautions. But I get it. People are people are edgy right now and not really. It's how to re-engage with life is ambiguous right Definitely. now, and I think we're all just trying to take our cues from the people around us and and be safe. I felt you know what was I, I guess you know what rubbed me the wrong way is it's counterintuitive. It's incongru it's incongruous. Either you are committing to like these, this is a safe, like the expansion of my day to day is going to be safe or it's not. And you should take all precautions. So like if you take even one precaution, it's like, I won't go to the market if I'm not down to shake hands, you know, like, yeah. cause I'm, I'm all in on this exposure and I trust that all these people are safe. I don't trust that other people are safe, but I trust these people. So if I'm going to, you know, then I'm going to hug and kiss, like who cares? But yeah, so I, I, guess, I guess the incongruent choice is what rubs me the wrong way. And that's just something I can get into about like all the fucking humanity and the universe of like, make your fucking choices, you know, move, move in a certain direction, like uh, understand, you know, have an understanding of your universe and your 24 hours and what you want to be doing and make all your decisions, all your actions in that direction so like these people are I, yeah that, that that that's what i think is like don't fucking show up if you're gonna wear a mask because it's incongruous yeah right on not to mention <laughs> it just feels so so cold and clinical as well. it, it was just it, this was a cool moment you know for the community and then like yeah. everyone's like a little side eye at the person wearing a mask it's like we're all because it's it's fucking you know it's hella psychological as well warmth and energy looking someone in the eye smiling and saying thank you yeah. to someone giving someone you know pesos and getting cash back and not flipping out you know like this action this exchange which is like potentially very you know very dangerous but we're all like we're all doing it and we have to kind of you know <laughs> we, we have to own these decisions these decisions that could kill us. So it's just like when there's a guy standing there who's like less in it than I am, it's like, I don't know. He can get some side eye. <laughs> yeah, not to mention, I'm just like, I take so many cues from, I respond to the world intuitively. Oftentimes it needs to sure. feel right to me. It can make sense in a million levels, but unless it feels right, I'm not, I'm not down. And That's I can't it, yeah. get, and you just can't judge someone's reaction from eyes alone. You know, the mouth and the yeah. different contours of the face. I get so much from my interactions by reading people's body language and the facial expressions in each moment. So that's a lot of my transactions feel, you know, feel so cold and I'm left with such a, a bleak, um, you know, feeling after, you know, day-to-day -day transactions from trying to judge, you know, the, their emotional temperature from their eyes alone. You know, that's funny you say that because as, as you're talking and I'm realizing what you're saying, I haven't done that because I've been actually, I'm out of, I'm not like in the world. I'm fully isolated out here. So mm -hmm. I, this was my actual, like I haven't gone to town. I went to town once early when I got here, like the day I moved into my house, I got some like essentials, you know, and I looked around town just to like know what was there. And that's it. I haven't, I haven't gone back into town since then. That was three months ago. Uh, and that's it. So I have not had what you just what you just talked about. I I haven't done that. So what has that like? What has that been like? And what's the uh, evolution of it over the last few months? Yeah, for me, it's been uh, a bad experience um, interacting with people in day to day settings. 
you know, t- going to the tailor, going to the market, getting gas in the car. Going um, to the tailor? You're going to the tailor? Why? <laughs> uh, well, most recently I needed to get like a running belt altered. Um, okay. But then I had a hat that needed to be like taken. Sorry to call you out. I'm just like, of all the things, like, you know. <laughs> Dude, I feel like it's constant, constantly in those tailors. I mean, every, you know, getting my I bespoke can. uh robe going. My <laughs> uh, it's all like, it's all like, like minimal things, but, sure, but sure. I want my clothes to fit right, whether, you know, whether that, that's a hat or a pair of jeans or a, you know, a button or something. And, we need um, to be civilized. Yes. Otherwise, what's it all for? <laughs> truly. But yeah, it's been, been, been a cold, there've been cold experiences. I see some select friends on a weekly basis. I go and it's my buddy Jason um, mm. in DC every Friday. We sit and work together. We go to lunch and then work in his apartment. Um, that tends to be like my big social outing of the week. Um, I run and do a lot of like outdoor exercising type stuff. And there's some people that I see on a regular basis, like on the trails here in Annapolis. Crossing. Do they, do they, do you cross the street? Do they cross the street? What have you, what's your vibe on that? Uh, it's chill. I think that everyone just tries to like give each other the space that they need. Uh You know, there's things, there's that like six foot, generally accepted since six foot, you know, perimeter around you. And I think that we, we do our best to abide by that. But if, you know, if you cross closer than that, in, in my experience, nobody freaks out. Oh, okay. And you've been mostly in Los Angeles, right? No, I've been in, in Maryland, actually. Oh, in, oh, you've, okay, for the whole, got it, right. Yeah, when, when all this stuff started escalating that week in March, on March, like, 12, right, we talked 13, about this, yeah. 14, yeah, when everything started closing. It was a Wednesday, and the office, the office closed, stores every, everything closed within a matter of like 72 hours mm-hmm. and and i bounced i got on a flight that sunday and flew back to maryland i was raised in maryland and flew back to my mom's place and i've been here since then i'll go back next month like early june-ish but yeah for these these three months it's been like sort of home vibes and you know outside exercising and doing what i can to move my body otherwise i've just been working from home and sort of spending time with family Who it's cooks? been nice mom she good? Um, yeah, mom's been holding us down. so cool. Like, I haven't had my mom. My mom hasn't cooked me a meal. My mom became, I'm the oldest, and my mom was, my grandma is a trash cook. My grandma is so fucking cool. Like, the coolest person. Um, oh, my God. Like, everything is owed to my grandma. She is the fucking greatest. But trash cook. Just, like, like, Passover dinner, when it was her night, was garbage every year. Garbage. Terrible cook. And my mom, like, learned nothing from her, but I was first born, and, like, halfway through my youth, my mom picked up cooking and, like, became, my mom's really good at this point, but I've been, like, I'm not really, a re- I'm not, like, a regular family member at this point of my life, and I haven't been. My brother took my bedroom while I was in college, and that was it. It was, like, I was already on my way out into, like, the world, and... Like I've been, it's, I call my family a box plus one, like basketball, like, like a zone defense where I'm the Kobe, I'm, I'm the MJ running around. So I, I, I'm on the ball. I'm doing more stuff, but they're a unit, you know? And um, yeah, we're on the same team technically, but I don't, I'm not there for family meals, but my mom's, my mom's a good cook. And she's, she's been telling me she's taking care of everybody. It's funny. Cause my, I don't think my sister's a good cook and they're all together, whole family. Sounds like it skips generations. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> yeah, my brother and sister can't do anything. They're like nicest people, but like, you know, no. Like mom yeah. mom is skilled. My, my mom and dad are skilled. They have they know how to do things. My brother and sister my, my brother um doesn't understand the New York City subway system. Yeah, yeah, it's a learning curve. <laughs> yeah, right. sure. But but yeah, that's what I'm my mom's been killing it in the kitchen and my little brother and my niece live across the street from my yeah, mom. I was going to say, you got like more family out there? Is it like a whole thing or what? It's not a whole thing. We're a small, we're a small tribe, but um, my mom lives in, in like this neighborhood called town center. It's like a couple high rises around like a little retail zone. And she lives in one uh, building and then across the way is my brother and my niece. That's awesome. and, and she's been out of school. My niece, Issa has been out of school since mid-March also. So, Right. She's been around, you know, doing lessons from home. We've mm -hmm. been having family dinners every night at six. And, and it's been nice. It's like this really like incredible moment in time that if it wasn't against the backdrop of all this like doom and gloom and, mm -hmm. you know, stock market undulations and right. just all the health scare and stuff, this would be really, really sacred in a lot of respects. I would be loving this, but it's tough to like really sink into it with a clear conscience knowing that, you know, there's so much uncertainty happening right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking out at, at the ocean, right? I'm on my terrace staring at the ocean and I, I think about it every day. I'm just like, like I can't help but feel the, the sanctity and the, the preciousness of this time outside, awesome. of course, of the dread. You know, there's, there's like, it's terrifying, both health and like infrastructure. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, like you can't think about that all day. And uh, like, I, I don't. And like, I'm just kind of like at the point where like, I don't know when I'm getting paid for anything in the next, like, I just don't know. And uh, that's, you know, <laughs> and, and like, and like, and like, it's pretty nice. That's something also. Yeah. No doubt. What sounds like you've been making the most of your time creatively down there also. Yeah. I mean, doing this has been fun. Like the last one. Uh, so I was like super isolated and really just like writing, working on music. Uh, it was really um, encouraging. So I've been on the remote like offices wherever I am thing for a while, basically since I left Apple 2017. I've been on the like wherever I am is what I'm doing today, you know. Um, and I go to the place where if I'm shooting something, if I have a meeting, if I have a session that needs to be in person, I'll be there. Otherwise, I'm just in the world. And I have my phone, I have my laptop, I have whatever. Um, so yeah, so it's been cool that like nothing was, like very little was, the only thing, like film stuff that like, like festivals and shit like that. So, you know, I can't shoot, I can't show anything. So that's going to be tough. But like music shit, you know, all my sessions have been like moving along. Uh, the, the, the biggest bump in the road is like my producer on the tracks that are coming out next. Like he decided to take three weeks and produce an album from scratch. Like, and, and it came out yesterday. Uh, so third son, um, and so now he's back on my project, which is nice, but I had to take a three week break because he decided to go make an album, you know, <laughs> which is great. Yeah. But, um, yeah, everything's been moving and then this has been cool. So, so basically like I decided, I was like, Oh, let me like this show that I've been meaning to do that. I've been like thinking about when the right moment is for a while. I was just like, fuck it, let's just go. And, um, so yeah, so starting this has been really fun and the combination of like this plus now I'm allowing myself to socialize with people locally here is like, holy fuck. Like it, like I spent 
over two months, maybe not quite three, like really isolated, like my house, the beach, and that's it. And I'd never done that in my life. I, I very rarely been in one place for two months, but waking up, you know, reading a book, watch, you know, like that's it. Like drinking my tea, never done it in my life. And it was really cool. And yeah, uh, creatively, it opens things up. You know, you shut all these other things down and a lot of clarity comes. A lot of new pathways get created. And now I feel, um, I feel really uh, accelerated because I'm now reintegrating, you know, like talking to you, talking to people that are like, relevant to my world and also like having like I hosted tea and drinks last night at my house like I haven't done that you know I had to prepare things I'm like exercising skills that I haven't you know very simple skills but like there's six people and I have to think about communicating with all of them at once like I haven't done that in a long time and I'm finding that the lack of other things fogging the interactions, the lack of all these, you know, I, I've maintained all the cuts that those things have still been eliminated yeah. and I'm only adding incrementally and it's really cool. And I find that the focus is there. Like it, it, it maintains, like I'm not getting, I'm not having emotional responses to things that I don't like having emotional responses to, to things that I find like inefficient emotional uh, attention getters, you know? I think that uh, a lot of my life is just, like I was talking to my dad about this um, a couple weeks ago. I was, I, was, I was like low energy one day and I found myself regressing, like uh, not just physically, but I found, I realized like, oh, I got a text that was upsetting. That was like, I needed to clap back to, you know? And I, and that, and that was like half a day. Energy was like in the wrong place. Oh, totally. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And I haven't really, like, I've managed to get rid of that mm -hmm. on, you know, pretty much every day. That was the exception, but it used to be a regular occurrence and you used to have to bounce up and down and you used to have to juggle those things. You know, you have your management clients, you have, an artist on tour, you have a new release coming out, you have, you know, a sync request, you have all these things. And like one of them, like a person just like, you know, doesn't get, does it disrespects you or something like that, you know? And like that colors the rest of it. It's been really cool to not have that happen and be able to just have these conversations like in a, in a vacuum, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that routine, like you said, just allows you to be more efficient with your time so you can focus more wholeheartedly on each compartment of the day. You wake up, right. it's that like tea and spiritual moment. You like sink completely into that. Uh -huh. Then you like pivot towards like your your fitness and wellness zone. Then you work and you work conservatively for like that next like chunk of hours and then you pivot into what's next. I think that when we're like left to our busy modern lives and you know, when you're home in New York, I'm back in LA, it's, yeah. you know, there's so many drains on our attention. That you're all day, reacting day long, constantly. 
constantly. And I have these like loose circles drawn around parts of my day. I'm, I'm at work. I'm, you know, I'm in the gym, I'm doing whatever it is, but my phone is with me constantly. I have right. this like constant din of, of, of noise and you're exposed things, constantly. 100% things that I need to be legitimately like on call for, but I'm reachable at all times. And I feel like I'm never completely dedicated to one thing, unless it's like, like I have a meditation practice, unless I like literally have my phone in another room and I'm on the cushion. What's your my practice? Time is, my time is really diffuse. Um, I have a daily practice. Uh, I sit 20 minutes every morning. Is that um, TM? No, it's not. No, it's Theravada, basically. It's, oh, okay. Yeah, ter- practice in like the Theravada tradition, um, cool. the Buddhist tradition. It's a Vipassana sort of meditation. Um, it's concentration meditation. Great. And then I, work, then I basically go to Insight LA. It's a, a Theravada group. In LA twice a have week. Have you done the, uh, the week or month retreat? Like the silent Vipassana? A bunch of retreats, but never any that long. I've done long weekend retreats, I've done a five day retreat, um, but I haven't like really gone in on one of these, you know, multi week or month retreats. I certainly plan to at some point, but it hasn't, hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I've never, I've never done any of them myself. I've, I've learned, I've taken like the TM, which like, you know, private thing, which is like very simple. It's like three days for an hour and a half. That's it with a person. Um, and yeah, I'm very, but I'm thinking about doing some stuff here. Cause like I'm in this crazy, like I have the, like the people here, there's some like world renowned, like, I don't know what you call it, you know, witches or shamans or whatever, like some, some cool shit here. So I'm thinking about it, but it's funny. Like my mom is like stressed about hearing about that. <laughs> She's very like Jewish doctor. Like just do that. Yeah. Yeah. I encourage you to take the plunge, man. If you have, if you have the time right now, it's, I mean, talk about like compartmentalizing our day. That's what right. a retreat does so well. It's like the ultimate compartment. You take, you know, weeks, weeks of your life out and you put your like normal day-to-day stuff on a shelf, you know, and you like delegate in advance, you know, other members of your team are handling the busy work, but then you like are able to sink completely into your practice for a designated period of time. And it's a, it's a total gift if you can, if you have the luxury of doing that. Yeah, I mean, you're right that now is a perfect time to do it. So do you find, okay, how has your like routine been adjusted by this? Have you found yourself more in routine, more free flowing? Like, have you added things? Have you subtracted things like, other than the obvious things that you've subtracted, like traveling? And, you know, like. Yeah, for me, for me, for better or worse, I've been like in this sort of family zone. So I wake up every morning and like, you know, have coffee, drink with my mom and sort of uh-huh. chop it up and then. You know, I always either run or work out from 10 to 11 every morning. And so I do that. That's sort of like my sacred. That's become like this thing that I protect. And then I you know, have a little lunch and then start working and I'll work all afternoon into the evening. Um, so my schedule, my mornings are a little thrown off. My, pra- my, my practice in the mornings aren't as, um, as stable as they are when I'm home by myself. You know, I, I live alone. I'm a single guy. I live alone. So I'm able to like really be regimented in my practice when I'm home. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's changed a little bit, bit here. Um, so I'm just trying to like, like freestyle it a little bit more, be not be as like rigid about, 
about my practice. I have a, a group, this it's like, we, it's become a virtual sangha every Tuesday night. It's about 12 of us that connect over Zoom and we sit for 30 minutes and then, you know, share on a topic. Someone will pose a topic and we'll riff on that a little bit. And then, and that's it. It takes an hour. It's, that's it's cool. become like sort of the anchor of my week from a, from a practice standpoint. And how has, so you manage a few artists as well as running an independent record label. What has that routine been like? Because you yeah. have a release today, you've released records like consistently. We have, yeah. We're like, we've, we've pushed a few priority, priority releases out to fall just because it's been, you know, our ability to pro properly promote records right now has been handicapped. You know, you can't, can't do shoots. Live shows are not happening for the foreseeable future. Um, and, and even press and radio, I mean, college radio is, you know, at a standstill right now. A lot of that stuff is, is either programmed virtually or it's, you know, they're running like, you know, back episodes. So we don't have the ability to market things like to the best of our ability. So stuff that we think will still make an impact and we can do digitally, we're still moving forward with those. Um, the bigger picture stuff we're holding until like, you know, the fall timeframe. Sure. And what's like the day-to-day -day been like? Are you, are you, you know, do you, do you connect, you, you have a, the Cassine team is, is three people. Is that right. right? Yeah. Are you guys, how is it asynchronous? Do you make times? Like, are you just like, you got a Dropbox and you got a Slack and you got email chains or, and like WhatsApp groups, or are you like, these hours are like, we're all going to be together and we're going to be talking live on Zoom or something. Like what, what is the workflow? Yeah, a little bit of all that. I mean, we have all of those like technologies employed. <laughs> um, but we also every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from three to four, we have team calls. And those are, you know, different topics. It's your project management stuff, it's management stuff, and it's one's a bit more abstract about bigger label issues that don't apply to our releases specifically. Um, so we all know that those are anchors. We dial in and we're able to, you know, work through agendas and um, in a more systematic way. So I think that those keep us sort of balanced as a team. Um, otherwise, we're, we're well organized in terms of like what duties we each oversee. Um, I think that that's helped not us. new. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I think that we've like, we're just a pretty organized, organized team. And I think that that's, that's cool. helped us instead as things have, you know, become a lot more freeform in these months. So, I mean, I was, I literally had one of your new records on just now as we uh, started this call. Um, it's funny, David Harrington and I both went to Dalton together growing up. So I know I him from, from back, back in the day. Um, you know, talk, talk me through a little bit of like, you know, you put a record out today, like what went into that? I know it was like more of a surprise release. It wasn't like some big campaign or whatever, but you know, talk, talk me through like what went into it. Yeah, like this, this one is a bit of an outlier, but it's an, it's a neat, it's a neat story with, with this one specifically in that like Dave and Spencer and Jeremy wanted to offer this to the world as a bit of a, bit of a peace offering in these okay. challenging times. They recorded the album last summer. It's incredible. Um, they were sitting on the tracks and they wanted to be a little more philanthropic with this and just offer this to the world instead of, you know, trying to put a lot of architecture around it, like a typical album would get. Um, so we teamed up with them. Spencer's a, a member of the team. We actually signed Spencer oh, cool. um, a few months ago. And we have an incredible record coming up with him this fall. But 
Um, but you know, with a, with a record, there's so many project management, like impact dates that happen. It starts usually about four to six months out. You like right. finalize the material and you engineer it and get it mastered. And then you put the, the record into production and that has that, you know, entails a pretty elaborate art package. Um, and that, that, that whole thing goes into the, the vinyl manufacturer for doing a, a physical run for a record. And we usually do, we usually press about 500 pieces for most of our releases, um, potentially more depending on if there's a sales history for an artist, but you know, five, 500 is usually the minimum. And then once the record goes into production, then we pivot towards the marketing aspects, mm -hmm. like asset creation. Do we need music videos and, and remixes early on? Do we want to do teasers for the record? Like what visual and physical assets like need to accompany the, the campaign? Um, so we launch into those. And then we also start fleshing out the team, publicists, radio people, um, creative agencies that are maybe going to help us you know, drive awareness in certain regions. Um, and all those conversations happen pretty early too. Like the good people book out early. So we try and build up the team, team as soon as possible. And then we start zeroing in on impact date. You know, everything gets delivered to the, the DSPs about six weeks out, six to seven weeks out. Um, and then we start getting our ducks in a row and start finalizing bios and one pagers and press picks and getting everything queued up. And then, you know, we typically launch the PR campaign, um, you know, about a week in advance, start seeding the record and singles to press that we think are going to support the record um, or have a good chance of supporting the record in advance. And then that first single announces the record and press releases go out and the machine kicks in and, you know, and then it runs, it's usually two to three months for the campaign, depending on the size of the artist and the length of the release. Um, and in a, in a normal world, you know, shows accompany that and there's right. always the live elements, listening parties, release parties um, that are probably going to be suspended for, you know, the, the majority of this year, if not the entirety. Zoom listening parties. <laughs> Yeah, we're rolling that around right now. We're actually like with um with one of our management clients, um, Hayden, who you know, mm -hmm. we're trying to figure out like what can how can we have, make meaningful talking intimate. about Hayden uh is is QT. Is she still going by QT, right? She's not. No, not? The, okay. the project will be called Hyde H Y D. Oh right, you told me this, yes, sorry. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, it is cool. The material is great. When um, is that yeah, what's the timeline? probably October launch with okay. like a, Oh yeah. I mean, what am I saying? Time is like ridiculous. <laughs> what do we know? Yeah. But we're still trying to get that record into production. So right now it's like, I yeah. Mean, talk we, to me about vinyl a little bit. Like what's the, I mean, yeah. What's going to happen. It's, I have a friend, have a friend that calls them dinosaur bones. And I huh. can't help but laugh every time I think of that. I mean, it's been a medium, you know, between the fire and, the, the 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 quarantine it's crazy it's just a slow moving process i mean i think that a vinyl dignifies a release so to speak i think that it's a nice thing to have i think that it's it is important as a as a boutique label that we put a good looking physical product into the world and for artists that are touring it's important to have you know items at the merch table and something that you know fans can take home from a show um but we, like I said, we always do a limited run. I mean, we'll do 500 pieces typically. We'll do 200 of those pieces will be like a highly limited, we'll have a limited item attached to it, whether that's a screen print 
of a piece of art or a fold-out poster or a color variant on the vinyl. Right. Um, so it's it, it's some some you know addendum that makes it makes the that early item a little more covetable. Nice. But it's a long process. It's you know typically five months from the time you put a record into production to the time it hits shelves. It's about three months to turn it around, and then six weeks to get it from you know the manufacturer to the distributor to the record stores. So it's it's a long process, and that usually that's not realistic. Moving forward, just thinking about just hearing you say that out loud, like like I know the process. Like we can't make five month processes on anything anymore. Like, yeah. like it's not good. It won't be good business practice to plan five months out with a physical, you know, something physical that requires a physical good or an arrive, you know, people gathering. It just can't like Facebook, the best you know, Facebook just made. Uh, so what was it? Um, Spotify yesterday, I think it was Spotify said, uh, their employees can work from home until the end of the year. And Facebook just oh. one-upped them by like, a, you know, legendary mile. Facebook just said that their employees can work from home forever. If like, like they basically can now move in the direction of structuring their jobs. Like not everyone, but like, let's figure out if your job can be just a work from home job, period. Because we want to be, not just like sensitive and prepared for the un you know the unexpected but they're just like yeah this is going to happen this is going to be part of our ex- like we'll figure out covid-19 but something else so we need to structure this company with the assumption that we get disrupted regularly so 5 months of like waiting for this thing this physical thing to show up in a cardboard box like no fucking way that's not a that's not a way that our industry can you know especially the artists who are like there's a lot of dance music artists that are like um you know that's their profit center like selling those 500 vinyls is like a huge part of their 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 profit and loss where like they'll you know their streaming is is an advertisement kind of and the you know it's almost like a patreon the way that they will sell you know 30 dollar vinyl and that's really profitable. And like, that's going to go away. That, that can't be relied upon to, to finance, the, to pay the 2,500 a month to the publicist, you know, and the radio. Like, mm-hmm. y- y- we can't rely on that. That's crazy. Fuck. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah, and it kills, it kills spontaneity as well. I mean, especially for stuff that like feels a little more like on trend and responsive to um, things that are happening socially or culturally. At the moment, right. like Charlie XCX you know, just made an album. Yeah, yeah, and if she had to make that, given and that was the context was so important to that mm-hmm. record, it would have made no sense if she recorded this quarantine album and then waited for five months while the vinyls were turned around to put it out in, in September. It just yeah, it, it wouldn't have felt cohesive. Yeah, like I'm about to start. We, we talked about this a little, but like I'm about to start releasing like what I consider like my. I've released music before, but I kind of think of it as like it wasn't like a serious. It was more like a side thing. But now, like I'm releasing like my proper artist music, and yeah. I don't even like vinyl. I, I don't think I'm gonna make vinyl because of that. Because of what you're talking about, it's just like 
well, I, I'm going to work on this record that that's going to come out. Like I want it to, like when we master it, like I want it out 48 hours later. Like <laughs> once I feel done, yeah. I want it out. Cause I'm going to be, I'm moving on, you know? And yeah. if we're talking about vinyl, like I don't want to be hearing about my vinyl shipments like in three months, mm-hmm. I'm going to already be on like, I'm, I'm already three albums. I'm going to have three albums out by then. <laughs> you know? like, I'm going to, I'm going to be, my, I'm going to have my, my head's going to be shaved. I'm, uh, my artist uh, <laughs> profile is going to be a symbol by that point. And <laughs> <laughs> and someone's going to be telling me that like oh yeah my uh my my blue cerulean you know clear vinyl special edition has arrived do you want to see them and i'm going to be like oh no sorry uh, like i'm swimming like fuck you i'm in mexico uh we don't get mail here oh, yeah. like <laughs> yeah. sorry i'm weird <laughs> Uh, I get yeah, it. I love man. vinyl, it's, but it's I just like don't see how how are we gonna do that? Yeah. Like Benafi, like I, I, I have Martha. We're doing a show tonight. Like like, oh, like I, 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 I I I like coordinated, so I would like have like a full casting day. It's funny, but uh, like she's so you know trendy, and like she thinks about like what's going on in the world. She loves people. She's social and stuff, and like. You know, all the press, I think one of the strong points of that campaign, your album campaign was the press because she is such a personality. And I loved seeing just like I was getting a ton of like newsletter stuff of her, you know, just being like everyone would. She did a ton of interviews and that um, that was really strong for her. But like, that's so timely. It's so now. And I don't know, just all the things that have long leads. Yeah. I just think are are going to become irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, especially for especially for artists like like Ben Offy, who's making yeah. whose music is very much a response to the time, and it's you know very very relevant in the moment. That was but, right before shutdown, right? That was like a month. Yeah, before. and you'll need to talk to her about that tonight because I know that it was like it 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 was it was heavy for her when everything happened. She had gone back to Australia in mm-hmm. December and you know the weather was good over there and she had a bunch of festival plays in the Australian summer so she went over there and, and played and really supported the record we, we co-released that with Dot Dash in Australia which is a remote control sub-label and they did a great job with the record and really kept her busy but she was on a big promotional promotional tour and played played a ton of shows January February time frame then she was flying back to the states early March and then we had you know, a tour lined up with her in Suisun, like South by Southwest, and a shitload of promotional stuff that we had put on pause for her until she came back. And this was going to be like, March was going to be the March and April were going to be the months that we really like activated that campaign in a physical sense in the States. And she came back and within days of her being back, everything got eviscerated. So it was a real bummer for that campaign. She handled it well, but I know that it was heavy for her to see everything clipped like that she's been i've known her for 10 years and she's been since ninja maybe not 10 maybe like seven years something like that but uh you know it was a long time coming fucking sucks yeah so i I, yeah i didn't didn't realize that was kind of like interrupt i didn't realize it it hit so uh 
right in it. Wow. I thought she was kind of, she had done her thing. Man, that, that sucks. But yeah, I guess I'll hear about it more. Yeah. Yeah. We've done, done a lot of stuff and hopefully we'll be able to like revisit some of those things when the time is right. But you know, you lose the moment. She's already moved into new material. Yeah. She says she's just, working on a lot of new stuff. Yeah. So even creatively, it's tough to go back and like channel the enthusiasm that existed around this album. You know, it's right. just philosophically, you can't like, you just sort of take yourself back there and make it feel as fresh and exciting and as exciting as it did yes. when you were in the thrust of the campaign. So a lot of that was just lost, coincidentally. And then you have a few, you, you can, I, I, I know more of your schedule, but I don't want to uh, like out any uh, unannounced stuff, but you have management, you, you have albums coming, you know, like, whatever you can talk about. I don't want you to share anything privy, but um, how are you, you know, ones that you were saying, like do require that longer lead and uh, that coordination. Um, you know, I know you have one in particular that, that is what, talk about it if you feel like it, but you could also just like broadly, you know? Um, but yeah, like, like what's that like preparing with the unknown? Yeah, I think that like at this point in time, we're all trying to do our best with, given the situation and, and prepare as much as we can without allowing life to come to a complete standstill. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that the album you're referring to is this Earth Eater record yes. that, that is done. I mean, Alex, Alex is a, a, a killer artist, you know, one of, truly one of, the, one of the artists that really keep me on my toes on a daily basis. Working with her is, is, is a thrill and um, just such a engaging experience, but but she finished the record last fall. She spent a month in Zar, two months in Zaragoza, Spain, working on a record, and and it's stunning. Best thing she's ever done, in my opinion. Um, it's done. It's ready to rock. It's just about to go into production. Um, so it will come out this year. Um, you know, we pushed it back initially. We wanted it to be a summer release, but we mm -hmm. really want her to be able to promote this album in 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 the right way, in a big holistic way. So at this point in time, we've pushed it back to, to early fall. Um, you know, we haven't announced it yet, um, but everyone like on the team and sort of like in the ecosystem knows that it's it's done. Exclusive it's announcement right here. Yeah, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of respects. I mean, we've definitely like, we, you know, we haven't mentioned it to, to any press at this point, but we're all really excited about it. Um, but she, it's a she great record. I've platform. listened to it. It's, it's a step forward. It's, I mean, I've loved all the records, but yeah, it's, it's going to build on top of the catalog so far. It's awesome. Thrilled to hear you say that. Yeah. We're really, we're really yeah. proud of her. It's an expansion. Um, definitely. And the art package is gorgeous too. She, she worked on it with a guy named Daniel Sandwalk in London. Um, and, it's really beautiful and really challenging and even grotesque in spots, but it's sort of quintessentially Earth Eater. Mm. So the vinyl's about to go into production and then, um, <laughs> you know, we'll gear up for a, for a fall launch. But she had a bunch of festival plays on the books this summer, right. this spring and summer. Her schedule this fall was, was bonkers and all of that's been wiped out at this point in time. Some of the festivals on the books for fall haven't been canceled yet, but we anticipate them being, so. How do you feel about festivals in this next chapter? I, 
You know, what someone told me recently that festivals are sort of an extension of our playlist culture. It's this sort of like grazing mindset that we're in as consumers where, you know, I open lean back Laura. as I lean back in my chair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, we open open pollen, for example, or, or Lorem and we like graze through and I like this cut and I like that cut and I pull a few of them into my work playlist, my running playlist and in a playlist, in a, in a festival, sort of the physical manifestation of that. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, cool. Yeah, I want to see Frank Ocean set. I want to see Tyler, the creator set. I want to hear Sia. I want to hear Charlie. I want to hear Kalani. You know, but I don't have... A Kalani. Deep... Nobody says that. Nobody wants to hear Kalani. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just being a hater. I, I like her. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's I'm funny. My dad and I were talking last night because he, uh, when, when she had her record, he forwarded me. And uh, I like, he, I, I like begrudgingly he was like, you predicted it. And I was like, begrudgingly. Like, I was like, I hate her, but like, it's going to be, there was another that years ago, not years ago, like three years ago. And I was like, there's already a Kalani and she's already like nothing like <laughs> whatever. I'm not going to go into my entire Kalani criticism, but uh, I was, there's not room for two nothings like Kalani, but without any real songs and without any real substance other than cool tattoos and like, like admittedly amazing style, but just like, that's it. Uh, and there was another artist that like didn't have the songs, but had all the relationships, all fucking cool looking. And just like, I was like, it's not, it's going to happen for Kalani, but it's not going to happen for anyone else. And yeah, that's how I feel about Kalani. Just completely vacuous, completely empty, <laughs> but like it's cool as fuck, but like completely empty. And you know, uh, COVID yeah, nineteen. You should have brought us at the time, but um, <laughs> yeah, there have been been some Kalani tracks that fucked with me over the years. Fair. But but you know, so festivals, I think are just like you know, I, I go and I like a little bit of each of these artists, and I, you know, graze along the roster, and I don't really feel like too emotionally invested in any one artist, and. So I get it. Um, I sort of grew up on festivals. Lollapalooza was, you know, a big one. I grew up in Maryland and, you know, we're, you know, outside of like stuff happening in DC and Baltimore, you know, this wasn't, DC is not a culture hub per se, not in terms of pop culture. So when the festivals would come through, it was always, always really exciting. Um, So I have a lot of love for festivals, but these days, unless I have an artist involved with, with one, it's rare that I'm there. I won't miss the festivals personally. I I think what you said about the playlist culture and, you know, I'm on board with that. And I, uh, you know, I'm worried about the economics. I'm worried about how, you know, the system of like how we get things to people, how artists grow, um, not just pay the bills, but how they get to audiences. Cause we've relied on this system for a while and that's going to break down, but I'm just kind of like that system was broken and we were hanging on by a throat. Thing. and like yo if it had if the rug had to get pulled out and it receded slowly like that's what that's how it went and it would be much more destabilizing to do it this way but it was going to happen anyway you know it, it's been it's it's been decreasingly relevant for a while uh i think that you know we're going to go back to niche culture we're going to go back to scenes i i, I speak about it as a health in in, in the health context like 
will you like the way you know i'm in my house right now and i invited people over last night and like if someone showed up who i didn't recognize who like someone didn't bring and vouch for like i'd be like hi like who who are you know i would i would say politely like please don't come in my house you gotta vouch for everyone in your surroundings and um that's what scene culture was when i grew up and you know uh my favorite clubs my favorite shows my favorite bands that that i was part of early days of like it's not exclusivity but you hear about it for a reason and that process is healthy and uh it leads to a really good feeling room and we got rid of that for the last decade where everyone hears about everything at the same time and ticket culture i talked to a bunch of djs over the last week and we talked about ticket culture you know and how for $35, just like random bro can be just as just as as important in the room as like the person who eats, breathes, die hard, you know, feeds this culture, like big community member. They're the same now. And like all that thing is like for $35, that person just bought equal treatment, you know? And I think that that scene person should be getting special treatment, not out of exclusivity, not out of... Uh, you know, a privilege kind of thing, but now it's just like energy. And yeah, I think no. we're going to have to go back to that in some ways. We can't just sell tickets to whoever because it's going to be, the rooms are going to be a quarter full and we're going to have to pick like who gets in. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I just hope that like for the time being that we can find out like a financially sustainable yeah, model. going to make money. Yeah, me neither. I mean, like, you know, say you have a, you know, 500 cap space or a thousand cap space, and you need to like put distance social distancing measures in effect. Yeah, well, you're gonna do 150 th- tickets, but you're gonna have to still give a rental, you know? Precisely. Yeah. How can you have front of house? And what f- artist is gonna have to come down on their fee? And I mean, it's just not, it's just not workable in the long term. I mean, people may make some concessions for the in the near term just because like that's the state of things, but it's not, it won't work long term at all. Right. Yeah, they could do a few, like, first couple months, there'll be goodwill and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. People wanting to just get, kick the tires and get, get things going. But people aren't going to sign up to do 18-month tours with break-evens, you know? You're not going to do that. If, Definitely you know, at best, I'd rather, I'd rather stay home. Patreon's going to be big, you know, patronage and foundations and stuff like that. I was talking to Ben Jaffe, Preservation Hall. And uh, I was talking to Lost Under Heaven, El- Ellery from Woo Life and Lost Under Heaven um, yeah. about their, yeah, so they're really good friends of mine, Ebony and Ellery. Um, and, you know, they're doing, like, they're doing a Patreon now because, like, they were with Mute and that just didn't really, it didn't really do, like, like they're kind of, you know, just like the rock band album cycle is not really a thing. Like, they just, Mute isn't, like, a bad label. It's just, like, lost under heaven 2020 album cycle is just like not you know it's not the way to do it anymore and they don't like there is no like who else do they pair alongside what playlists do you market lost under heaven you know nobody so like the strategies just don't work so they're going like basically direct to fan at this point and it's like the appeal is just hey do you like this stuff do you want us to continue being artists like well, then we need $5 or $10 a month. And like, yeah. yeah, and we can do that these days. Like the, the, the mechanisms for going direct to fans are there. 
And yeah. I like that. I think that that's, that's, you know, able to have maintain that direct line into fans is, is really valuable. Um, but on the same, same token, I feel bad, like, you know, for the artists that we manage, you know, I'm like, I'm usually slow to adopt those, you know, Spotify recently launched that direct funding button. Yeah, but it's for a crock of shit. Artists. Yeah, and I like, I was pretty low on that. You know, that yeah. came from our distributor and, you know, our label manager, Nick said, they said, should we distribute this to the, you know, to the whole, to call, you know, our artists and encourage them to do it. And, and I was like, no, not really. I was like, maybe send it to management and like, let them know that this is, this is an option if they want to employ it. But overall, I don't really love going sort of, you know, hat in hand to exactly. fans. I think it made artists look weak and a little like sad because what it did was it set up this, this, du this uh, dichotomy between the haves and the have nots and it put it front and center. It just did, it did it in public where do you want to turn this on or not? You know, do you want to be Drake and be a big man? You know, do you want to be a mature artist who gets to donate to charities or do you want to say that you have to be the charity because you don't get to pay your own bills, you know, because your streaming is not high enough. Like, Man, like, wait, what, what was the, hold on. What was the point of this again? Like, who was this for? Was this a, you know, like, because what ended up happening was it just made a bunch of artists who were already making a lot of money look, it's another PR point for these artists to be like donating to X, Y, or Z. You know, they get to announce who their donations go to. It's another talking point for them. What is it for Earth Eater? Like, you know, how much money has come through that? No fucking way. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, like dude, that, I mean, she, Earth Theater has an incredible live show and a lot of, you know, her annual income comes from, from shows and touring. So, yeah. you know, we've had to get creative recently. The, she's had a lot of success on the sync and licensing tip. So we've had, Great. that's become a real, a real revenue Film stream for her, thankfully. But, but you know, her, her, her streams are modest. Um, she has a dedicated, the good thing about our theater is that she has a dedicated fan base that actually like proactively streams her material instead of us relying on So that's on when place. we get into the user-centric stream royalty model, but people misunderstand the user-centric uh, payouts and it's just very simple to talk that one down. Like when you don't do user-centric, like Earth Eater gets a percentage of Drake streams and Drake gets a percentage of Earth Eater streams. So if Earth Eater wanted to say the couple thousand people that only stream Earth Eater on Spotify, she should get 100% of that. She's going to net out the same because she's also getting a percentage of these gigantic Drake streams mm -hmm. by being a member of this pool. If she wants to remove herself from the pool, she's going to lose that. And it's going to be the same. It's math. It's just, you know, that's how it works. It's percentage of the pie. Uh, the way that user-centric model improves is with patronage, is with someone saying, you know, I'm going to pay my Spotify at $9.99, but I'm also going to realize that, oh, you know, I care about Earth Theater doing more and I'm just going to give an extra dollar directly to Earth Theater. It's just Spotify didn't really set it up that way for it to be like that. It set it up differently. Yeah, it's an imperfect system, um, and I hope that for right now it's just just a stopgap more than you know the new normal. Because when things are good and she can be on the road and 
you know, sort of activating her music, it's, you know, the money is there and she, there's, yeah. you know, she's a, an artist that supports herself with her craft. And, but right now we're, you know, that's, we we're really handicapped without the ability to play shows. Hmm. Shit. I, I say that, you know, my, my, I wrote that article for, for music business worldwide and, you know, my, yeah, I read that. My, oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, my, my, my shit is like, we got to collaborate, you know, we got to, we got to mix media collaborate and um, we have to like horizontalize. We have to diversify our revenue streams. You know, we have to not just, not just consider it diversifying revenue streams, but like, Earth Eater has to genuinely like apply her artistic sensibility in a qualitative way to things other than music in order to be a successful, you know, revenue generating artist. Um, it's going to be really hard for an artist to just make music. You have to be really, really, really special to just make music and just like make enough money to have, you know, to pay a manager, pay, you know, whatever the booking agent will get, you know, but pay a publicist. You're going to have to have like, I think there's going to be levers. You know, that's how I'm looking at my career right now is like, I have this podcast that's like going to net zero for a while, but like in a, in a, in a, in a little while, I'm going to do a sponsorship deal or something. I'm going to sign with an agency or something like that. And then that's going to promote this other thing that I'm going to do. And it's going to pay for this thing. And that thing's going to be a lost leader. And then eventually, you know, and I just like, I have to live my life that way. I think where like music will be taking care of this quarter and the film is going to take all my money. You know, I'm going to all, all my, I'm going to pay off my expenses. And then like the film is going to get all my, like if I have $30,000 film and then the film a year later is going to get me a first look deal somewhere that's going to put X amount in my in my checking account. And then that's going to pay for, you know, salaries on the podcast, whatever, like. Sure. Yeah, I get it. And, and it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's in my opinion, all about like trying to have a life that feels good and, and a life that we feel like genuinely emotionally invested in no matter how like, you know, dif diffuse that may seem, you know, if we're like genuinely, if we genuinely give a shit about, all of those different things that we devote our time to, then I think that's the best that we can hope for. You know, hopefully it comes and that, you know, we are able to make the economy, our personal economies work with all of that. But, you know, if we're doing what we want every day, that's sort of the goal. So talk to me about, you know, in that aspect, you, you know, Cassine is, you were in New York operating for what, for 10, for 10 years or something like that? Yeah. And then you shifted yeah, to LA, what, two years ago? Is it? No, recently, February. Recently. February, wow. Oh my God, shit. So really quick. Um, uh -huh. Okay, so what, what went into that? Life, flow, like what? Yeah, I think it was. I think what, what, I, what I liked most about LA, and I need to preface that with like, I lived in LA for five years in the mid 2000s. I was out there from like 2005 to 2010. I was actually out there getting sober at that point and then moved back to New York in 2010. I lived in New York for a few years prior to that. Okay. Then moved back to New York in 2010 and then just moved back 
back to California in February. And I still wanted to be, you know, I still want to be in a culture hub. I still want access to, you know, the music and art communities and great restaurants and independent film and literature and, you know, all the things that we want as young people that inspire us as young people. But I really wanted to turn the volume down on life a little bit. I love New York. I will always, I'll forever miss New York and forever be inspired in New York more than almost any place else. But it, the pace of New York was, was starting to grind me down. You know, I'm in my, I'm 41 now. And I didn't want to lose access to all the cool things that feed me, but I needed like to get a little slower. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a born and raised New Yorker and, and, and I've always, I've looked at Cassine as, you know, one of the, one of the good examples of, of, of New York based, New York homegrown companies in, in the music industry. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been one by one over the years. New York lost something. I don't know if it's our series of mayors or what, but there's culture being centralized and consolidated. I don't know. I think it's probably more of that, but I don't know. Why, why is New York more hectic for you than Los Angeles on a day-to-day? I think just from the sheer like physical, there's some like just like physical elements of New York. It, you know, it's density and it's um, sort of right in the subway. Yeah, that's that that takes its toll for yeah. sure. Um, but also, there was a point like when I moved back in 2010. I mean, the community was so deep at that point in time, and in North Brooklyn was utopia for the independent art community. I mean, we shared an office at one point in time with. Mexican Summer had the lease on this huge warehouse in Greenpoint, and it was Captured Tracks, Cassine, Revenge, Sacred Bones, and Mexican Whoa. Summer. Mexican was, Summer 2010 is like basically like my music is like 1981 New York, like Z Records meets Mexican Summer 2010. Basically, is like the kind of music I like. <laughs> it's a great cross section. Yeah. <laughs> But it was so good. That was like, you know, I lived in Williamsburg. I spent the last 10 years in Williamsburg, but I would walk to work in Greenpoint. You know, the venues in Williamsburg and Greenpoint were great. The restaurants, we could all afford to like have our companies and our homes and our restaurants and our venues and our little PR companies. And I mean, everything existed within this like 30 block radius. And it felt really kinetic, really supportive, really exciting. And I was able, like, I was a young guy that had, like, I spent 10 years after college in, you know, in PR and marketing. So I was coming into music as, like, a pure amateur. For an agency called Golan, Golan Harris. Okay. It's a, a bigger PR agency working on, like, bigger consumer branding stuff. Um, and Weber Shandwick prior to that. Um, but, you know, I, for the first three years of Cassine, I was still working my agency job in Midtown. So I'd go to be in Midtown you know, five days a week. And then I would come home and around the edges of my day job and nights and weekends, I was just like full throttle, you know, into the label. Um, but I was able to lean into, you know, some of those relationships with people that had so much more experience than me, the, you know, Mike Snipers and Caleb Broughton's and Matt Worth and Tom Clapp. And like, these are, these are people that had built, built labels from the ground up with what, their like, hands. Wh- wh- who were they? What companies were they? 
that was like Tom at Mexican Summer and Matt from Revenge and Caleb at Sacred Bones and then Mike Mike Sniper from Captured Tracks. Cool. And and everybody was down to like share advice and turn me on to like their recommended publicists and help me get set up with distributors and and it was really communal and everyone was really lovely and generous with their time. And if it wasn't for that, I think the casting would have would have taken a lot longer to get off the ground or we would have really fumbled I think some in like building infrastructure early on if we weren't able to lean into some of those friendships that the community and the prox being in proximity to all of those people in North Brooklyn really provided us. And give us like a an update of so revenge you share an office with in Los Angeles right? In in New York we're still we oh you're still oh, right 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 okay uh and Sacred Bones is still in New York, I think, right? Yep. Yep. And, and there, what, Captured is still there. Captured is still there. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Actually, we, we share an office with Revenge in Bushwick right. on the, the Morgan stop. And we've done that for years and we just kept that going. I'm in LA now. Yeah. Um, the rest of the team is in, in New York. I'm in LA. I actually worked in the Secretly Canadian office in the Arts District. Um, you know, Chris Swanson is a friend. He offered offered me a desk there. So, so that works, but that's more of like an interim solution. I mean, I think that like, I definitely at some point want the full team in LA and want to build a, a casting specific space. But for the time being, it's a, it's a, it's a total pleasure to be around the secretly team. They're just such professionals and um, are just killing it these days in general. That's cool. I like the communal spirit the labels you know not non-competitive more just like everyone get good music out and lift the uh the tide you know it really is and it, and it still does feel like that in a lot of respects and i think the cassine has always been like occupied this sort of neat space in that because we've always identified as a pop label and up until recently pop was a bit of a four-letter word i mean there were a lot of you know a lot of the labels that we've been talking about they were you know into much more heavy, angular, aggressive stuff. And, and we were like deep into Scandinavian pop and stuff that was a lot more like bright and melodic. And so we were rarely in the, those competitive conversations with um, you know, artists that would hit the scene. I remember when like Perfect Pussy, for example, hit the scene or Lust for Youth. I mean, those were feeding frenzies. I mean, labels were all over those artists in, in New York, in, in we had no interest in them. Like as a fan, I like a lot of that stuff perhaps, but we just, it's never anything that we would have signed. So we were able to like sort of exist as, you know, we had a lot of immunity with the mm -hmm. labels that we dealt with because we were never going after the same artists that they were. And my dad doesn't talk to any of them, right? Or, or no. Does he have relationships with Not any of those people? I don't know. I mean, I feel like your dad is a, he's such a vet. I'm sure he has to know. <laughs> I mean, he's older, obviously. He's another generation. He probably knows some of those, those people, but no, I doubt that he, um, you know, is in dialogue with them on a daily basis. Cause it's funny. Cause there's a lot of crossover, you know, like late, late they are also like, you guys have, you know, looked at similar artists, but yeah, just my dad, like his life is different. And honestly, man, like, I feel like I need people like Daniel Glass to look up to as, um, you know, as reference points and 
um, you know, people that have done and have achieved things that I want to achieve also. I mean, I need, I need to be able to look to people, you know, a step ahead or many steps ahead and to say like, you know, this is a career that I think is cool and esteemable mm-hmm. that, you know, I would love to, you know, replicate or at least like take some cues from and, and your dad falls into that category for me. Yeah, I always think about it as a funny reference point because he's both the, like, as you just said, it's a reference point that shows what can be achieved with like an independent record label out of New York City. But also it's like completely not realistic because what he does is so different from like what you do and what these uh, like all these other labels that you just described just he comes from a completely different time in school and his actual process of like the way he promotes records is totally different and no one ever gets taught what he does he just does it and then there's other people like his his team is like a support system to what he does but like the things that he does are the things that like there's a reason like his team is great, but like they're not delivering number one records. He's delivering the number one. He has three number ones from his shit. And then like he otherwise has a well-oiled machine that does a bunch of similar things to what the other indie labels do. But he provides these unique things that elevate it. And he doesn't really like, like, I don't know. I don't see, not since like the early days, like SBK days, no one graduates and does what he does. It kind of like it was the end. Like he, uh, he had a bunch of promotion people like like, like Charlie Walk, Jerry Blair, Monty Lippman, Avery Lippman, Rob Stone, John Cohen. Like go and create, like go and take notes back in the '90s and create massive, massive things like Republic Records. Like, uh, but that was it. After that, like once Glass Notes started, like that was it, and. Um, no one had he is still doing it like he works like monty and avery you know like they have similar monty and avery use more data but uh my dad they do promotion and like none of the would be like now like more recent followers do that so like no one's learning like i don't think anyone's learning anything from my dad other than it's like inspirational and stuff but like he's just doing like he's going to be the last one that breaks records that way. I don't, I've never been able to do it. I don't, I don't know anyone else who has for, for a decade, you know, for like a generation, the people who do it are like universal, you know, and he does things that universal does. He doesn't do things that Cassine does or sacred bones. Like you guys, like I always, you know, I have frustrating conversations with him all the time, creatively, like like creative asset wise, like Glassnode has basically never made a good music video, you know, just ever. <laughs> if they have one, it's because someone, it's because the artist delivered it, you know, and stuff like that. And like, while that office that you describe, like of that sort of like consortium of, of indie labels, like is constantly making like really great visual art, but Glassnode doesn't have a knack for that. It just does things despite. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny. There's this huge separation of skill set where Glassnote does not at all achieve in any of the ways that you guys achieve and you don't achieve in any of the ways that they achieve. It's very funny. Yet they're, I don't think people understand that, that like widely, you know, unless they listen to like a left sets interview or something like that. And my dad starts referencing people that like, you know, would never come up in your campaign, 
but then you realize, oh, wait a second, those were the key people that got churches to, you know, where they got. Um, but at the same time, then you look at like the images and it's just trash, you know, like remix campaign or whatever is like totally off the mark, like yeah. old, you know, and like, <laughs> but it gets there. Like, if you look at numbers, it's crazy. I was talking to like, like Hamilton numbers are like bigger than whatever there's, I'm not going to say, but we, I was comparing Hamilton numbers to Hamilton Lighthouser to an artist that is like press wise and just like indie credibility, you know, indie, not credibility, uh, awareness, you know, just like someone who's like always tops of the year end list, just like very famous indie artists. Like Hamilton's got tons more streams, mm -hmm. like by, like by miles. And, and, and I just looked and I did that comparison. I'm like, holy fuck. I was just thinking about it. Like, economically i was thinking about it for myself because so i was like how does hamilton make money and i was kind of trying to understand it and like they do really well in categories that other artists like don't fucking touch and it's wild to me categories that i didn't even think about like radio uh -huh. kind of stuff and they make tons of money yeah and in an ideal world you'd want your artist i mean we want our artists to do both we want yeah. it to be critically and commercially successful you know sadly you know it's usually one or the other but you know we want want people to say nice things about the material we want it to you know to feel relevant and, and interesting and like connect with the right people connect with a discerning audience but we also want to move some fucking units too and so how do we get streams up you know like for the for these kind for cassine kinds of artists like you know i remember pointing this out mitski was number one pitchfork song of the year album of the year and she had 10 million streams on nobody at that time. Now it's at 30 million, I'm pretty sure. But like still 30 million is, you know, nothing for the number one song of the year yeah. on Pitchfork. Yeah, it's amazing. How, how do we get how, that up? Oh, man. I mean, so much of it, unfortunately, depends on, you know, like just playlist saturation on the DSPs. I know it's a it's it's a it's a it's a it's a terrible game to play, but it's, you know, we're do sort you of promote to playlists. Do you, do you pitch that stuff? We do. Yeah, there's like, you know, a whole back end that we use to pitch our distributor Red Eye, you know, pitches on our behalf. And then I, I maintain direct relationships with the editorial heads at Apple and Spotify. And I'm, I'm judicious about what I email them with. And Good. it doesn't always get the response that I want. But you know, they will they will throw me a bone when they can tell that I'm like, particularly passionate about an artist or a release. But but that's a fraction, even, even in my best case scenario, that's like a fraction of the support that you'll see like a major label artist get where like those singles are blanketed, literally blanketed across like hundreds of playlists with, you know, hundreds of millions of followers collectively across all of them. Whereas, you know, the best Cassine release, you know, we'll see, you know, maybe 10, like the Ben Offie, the playlisting on Ben Offie was solid, but we'd see, you know, five to 15 playlists for each single and that would they'd sit there for you know anywhere from a week to three weeks and then they would drop off and like yeah. you know so streams would plunge again and you end the up with a couple million and like yeah exactly and they peter out at a couple million i mean i think the best case scenario is that like you know you do see some playlist support some editorial support at the playlist but then you also have a lot of inbound traffic from people just being stoked on the artist and going and screaming at themselves 
And like, that's what Earth Eater has. Like this last, last Earth Eater single, Bed Below the Clavicle, that came out last week. I mean, there was no, zero playlisting on that. No playlisting. But the streams are all organic. It's somewhere around 50 right now, 50,000. Which for total, purely inbound traffic over the course of one week on a single is solid. Um, you know, in some of these playlist darlings, don't have that and i'd, mm-hmm. r- I'd rather take take fifty thousand fans that like genuinely give a yeah, shit yeah you got a real artist you know yeah exactly okay so band camp go <laughs> it's effective i mean the numbers that they do are astronomical i can't it's it still boggles my mind like the the sheer, seven million the money that they generate is nuts, dude. It's wild. On the, they've been doing, I mean, I think anyone who listens to this is aware that they've been doing band camp days since quarantine once a month. And they, they waive their fee, which is already minuscule in comparison to what they could and should charge for what they do. Uh, but they waive their fee once a month on a Friday release day. And everyone just like, no matter what, like demos, live new singles, let's get them out, you know? And it's like, yeah. and they generate, it's been going up by a, a third every time and they're doing another one and uh last one did over seven million yeah i'm totally i'm totally down with Bandcamp. i think that they're like really artist friendly and do everything they can to support the artist and their editorial platform is great Bandcamp. Yeah, so do you talk to them directly about editorial we do yeah yeah we do um and they're always really responsive they give a shit they employ like a good i should have Bandcamp people on this show by the way you really should do. I'd be yeah. happy to connect you. I'd be happy. I would to love that. Yeah, because I don't really know them. Because like Bandcamp sort of came of age when I was doing Connect, but like it was you know it didn't get to do its thing until I stopped doing my thing. Because I was kind of I like was what Bandcamp we like I was making Apple what Bandcamp would have been, and then we stopped yeah. doing Connect and Bandcamp got to do it. So I yeah I never connected with any. I don't know anyone. I'd love to have them on. Yeah, dude, I'll put you in touch with our guy there. Um, but it's, it's, it's a great platform, and they're really, really supportive of, of the artists. Um, and also, like, you know, a lot of people, you know, most fans think that they are buying it directly from the artist, and, and they are generally. I mean, a lot of labels run those shops, mm-hmm. so just to control like, the logistic side of things, the orders come in and we fulfill them. But, you know, you are, you are supporting the, the artist the most directly via Bandcamp versus... No, there's still royalties and there's still rights management. That's not related to, you know, Bandcamp doesn't affect that. Yeah. So what's a Bandcamp campaign? Um, gosh, I mean, there's some like little bells and whistles that like I'm yeah. probably not so, so well-versed in. Nick, our, our label manager is like kind of the guy with that. But basically you like set it up in Bandcamp, you like program the profile with the copy and images of the vinyl and make it look pretty, but then you set the dates. You know, when you announce the first single, that first single will unlock, it's listenable and you can buy the, the high res file or the MP3. And then as the campaign progresses, the other singles get unlocked instead of those announcements, those impact dates. And then on the date that the album goes live, all fans get an email saying that the album is launched and it's up for sale and the album is then available for purchase. And it's also purchasable in, in high risk format, which is really good for like dance music and definitely want those high risk files to play out. 
anything? Do you, have you been for the last two, three months about like how to optimize that? Are there extra assets? Are there, uh, I don't know, are you adjusting content or algorithms or copy to just like really super serve the, that, the Bandcamp audience and the Bandcamp format? Yeah, you know what it is? It's the app. The Bandcamp app is like, is, is so good. And it allows you to communicate directly with fans. So you can go in and you can look across. So if I go to the Cassine Bandcamp app, like I'll see the, you know, the 25 artists stores that we oversee and like the, the hundreds of releases, this point, you know, hundreds and hundreds of releases that we're like administering on their behalf. And we can see purchase patterns across all of those, like which fans have supported certain artists and we can communicate with them directly. So we can program newsletters and even just direct transmissions. Like we can hit them up sort of one-off and let them know that new um, Southern Shores is coming out or new Bell Towers or new Ben Offy. And, and it stores all of that data so that we have, we can communicate with people in real time. And it also feels a lot more casual and nonchalant as opposed to, you know, an email blast or something that's a little more stiff and, inform and informal. Yeah, I personally have my release radar is the first thing that I rinse through. And then I get my band camp. Uh, I don't actually go through my feed because I don't tend to get to it. What I do is I just have the newsletter, the direct newsletter turned on for all the ones that I really care about. And I get a shitload. Of, you know, I get 30, 40 a week. And I just, I snooze them until like Sunday or Monday. And, um, and throughout the week I, I do little binges and I just dive into my band camp submission, you know, not submissions releases. Uh, but I, I go through my Spotify release radar first and because that expires and then, uh, and then I do my band camp and I usually, if, if it's not, if it's a regular week, I get through it by, I think I got through it what day is Thursday? Yeah, I got through it yesterday. I'm pretty sure. I'm done with Bandcamp on Wednesday this week. And now I was into DJ promos today, which are trash. DJ promos just in general, all my DJ promos are fucking trash. Like, I haven't cared about DJ promo. I'm not DJing the way that I used to. I'm not playing every night like I used to. But I just, I, I like, I still get, like, I, from what I understand, all the DJ promoters are still, like, the guy, like, I'm still on all the mailers, and I get more DJ promos than I've ever gotten, and they're trash. Like, all my uh, in-flight and fat, and, and fat drop are garbage. Uh, so I get my DJ music on Bandcamp and a little bit on my release radar, but mostly on Bandcamp. Most of my stuff in my DJ folders comes from Bandcamp, and I, you know, I just, I either purchase it or I hit up whoever and I, like if I have a relationship I'll be like yo can you add me to your your promo mailer but usually I'll like as a sign of you know good faith I'll like buy the first one and be like yo I just downloaded your band camp like please keep me in the loop for future releases blah 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 but DJ awesome. promo industry is garbage I mean I guess just like dance music has been really weird I guess yeah um, the 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 promotion the promotional you know, tools for the dance community are, are weak. I feel like it's such a sort of an insulated yeah. industry that you know what you want to listen to. You know, who's putting out. The I stuff get direct. Yeah. I get direct stuff from the guys that I like and like, cool. Yeah. yeah. You know, like the labels and the mix series and stuff that like, 
click with you. And yeah, it's a little more self-directed in that sense. I mean, there is, there is press, but outside of like, I don't know, RA and Mixmag, you know, it's so niche, you know, some of the, the traffic on some of the smaller sites is, mm -hmm. you know, it's negligible. Someone, I mean, I had a, a shitty conversation this week. Someone asked me, it was like, like, I want to do an, I told him like, I want to do an episode on it because I shut him down. Basically. He asked me like good friend who is an artist, like, but we don't, we're not friends cause he's an artist, you know, like he's my friend and he's an artist. And he did that, you know, he did that text of like, yo, got this thing coming. Do you think you could pass it along to, to, to X? And mm -hmm. I was like, I was like, are you sure you're, you're like, you have, you, you have that card to pull with me. Is this really the moment that you want to do it? Do you really care that much about whatever I can say it? Like, I love them. Obviously. Like, do you really care about premiering a remix in Fader magazine? Is it that important that you use? Like, I was like, this is not relevant yeah. to Fader and it's not relevant to me. It's not your best work. It's not a big name remixer. You just, you know, you just want something for it. You need some juice behind it. You want to keep momentum flowing. And you're asking me a favor that it's not a huge favor, but it's a bad favor because it's, you know, it's me calling in a favor yeah. to someone who will do it for me. And you know, they'll do it for me and I'll do it for you. But if you're going to ask me to do that, are you sure this is the time? Are you sure it's worth it? Are you going to gain from this? Because I don't think premiering this remix on Fader Magazine is going to move the needle for your career. I think it's irrelevant. I think you could just put it up on SoundCloud and Bandcamp and like it'll, you'll get, you'll get literally 46 plays more if you put it on Fader Magazine, you know? And, but, but you're never going to be able to ask me for a bullshit favor again, you know? <laughs> yeah, you've got to be judicious with those, man. Because like, I, said I was super straight with him. I was, I was like that, you know? I was like, I love you and I'll do this for you, but I will never do it again. Yeah. <laughs> So what happened? Did you, did you end up doing it for him? He, 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 no, he, uh, I said I would do it. I just said, like, if you make me do this, it changes our relationship. It was kind of like you're talking about your judicious with what you send to the playlisters. Uh, I remember when I was at Apple, someone wrote me an email that said, never hurts to ask. And I said, actually, and, and it was like this. It was a similar situation. A friend who's an artist we're friends because we're friends not because he's an artist but he has access to me and he sent me like some bullshit remix that he was putting out and asked me to playlist it and i was like i was like i have no reason to playlist this like this is so like i'm not like to put on beats one or something like that because i could do that and he was aware that i could just like put some bullshit on beats one if i really if i really chose to i could and he was my friend and i would do him a favor and, and then I remember like saying like, dude, I mean, it's really, it doesn't fit like where I, maybe it was a track or something. I was like, it doesn't fit his show at all. Like, you know, this is not your, it was the same thing. It was like, not your best work. Like, I don't, it's not a marquee. It's not a big name. Like, I don't know why. Like, and he's like, oh, don't do, don't worry about it. Thanks so much. Like, you know, it never hurts to ask. And I was like, actually, like, you just changed our relationship forever. So like, it's up to you if you think it doesn't hurt to ask, but I mean, I'm never going to, I just, I now take you less seriously as an artist and as an entrepreneur artist, like as a person marketing yourself. And I also take you less seriously as a friend forever. Ir irreparable.
<laughs> yeah, I get that. Make those make those ask asks count. I mean, there are only so many times that we can like lean into our personal friendships for mm-hmm. those favorites. I want those asks to be valuable for both sides, you know? Like connect something yeah. that you get credit for connecting. Dude, we always talk about like adding value to our campaigns. Right. And like and it's an indie label I find myself going up against talking to managers constantly about having to you know we live in this world of like label services deals now where you can go to k7 or cobalt and you can get you know 20 grand and you know some good terms on a release and and you can do it yourself with a savvy manager and like some good material and artists can self-release things with a label services deal and it can work um so i have managers taking me to task on that all the time really wanting us to like you know prove our value and Mm -hmm. And I really feel like as an indie label, like we need to add value, legitimately add value to these yeah. artists and these releases or else, or else don't be a label. Like don't claim to be a label, but then not come to the table with some strategy, some resources, some smarts, some mm-hmm. ammunition. It's really going to help develop this artist and drive awareness in a real way. I'm happy you know, to hear you say that. Uh, I, you just brought me back to... I was on a panel at CMJ when there was such a thing as CMJ. Uh, <laughs> and it was me and like five other A&Rs at different indie labels. And I remember being the one who basically said what you just said. Uh, and everyone else on the panel pretty much said that the job of this, of, of us, of our indie label is to be super cool and be a tastemaker and provide access, provide a vouch a cosign, you know, to this artist and access like the audience follows all of our releases because we're super cool and we have a history. And now this artist gets access and vouch from that. And that's it. And like, if we do any like promotion and stuff like that, that's cool. But we don't have the resources to do that. We don't have the number, you know, the, the, the margins to do that. So we don't really think about it too much. And I was like, yo, like, I don't think that's I don't, like, I don't think that's valid. I don't think you're going to be a label that long. And I was like the bad guy on the, uh, on the panel. That's way funny. Yeah. I think I remember you, you mentioning that in that piece and it's, oh, funny, and, I'm yeah. glad that you, like, and I'm glad that you were transparent. Oh no, that's a different panel. <laughs> I'm always the bad guy, I guess. I'm always <laughs> yeah. the one naysaying everyone else on the panel. <laughs> but I love that you're willing to be transparent. Like in Fuck that. Yeah. Panel. I was like, yeah. you have to validate yourself. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. Or else like, if I don't genuinely think that I can add value to the artist or the release, like I'd rather not, not get involved. That's cool to hear. Cause I really think that's a huge problem in the indie community. The baby's all right. Uh, side room of people having drinks together, just kind of being like, cool, I'm part of the community. That's all that matters. And like people should support me, meaning sign with my sign their masters to my company that I created that doesn't have employees. And, you know, I kind of service the things, the playlist, but like, no, we're just a really good name and people care. Fuck that. Fuck you. Yeah. Go get extinct. And those names, (laughs) those names mean less, less than ever before. I mean, it's so, it's so. I'm thinking about the names that were on that panel and I'm not, I'm not going to say them because uh, first of all, most listeners will not recognize them. And uh, second of all, you know, all love to them and they're great labels, but they're not around. Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, there's such but a secretly Canadian kicks ass. They deliver. They deliver. That's cool that you're, you know, taking notes there because they know how to expand. They, they expand. 
Yeah, they have. They've done a great job. Them, Ghostly is another one to label that. Love Sam Valenti. I'm going to have him on. Yeah, yeah, he just does it right. He's a, he's a professional person that, you know, consistently delivers for his artists. And like, it has been also like really dedicated to an aesthetic. And that's another thing that I like. Yeah, he's love. expanded his business in all these cool ways. Yeah, yeah, he's been smart. But like, I love that, like, adhere to an aesthetic concept as well. I think that it's important that like, as, as an indie label, as an entity in pop culture, that we have an area of expertise. Like, like when you think casting, you think, you know, this sort of like alternative pop, this sort of like sundown alternative pop vibe. We always put a big premium on melody and we're sort of after this like emotional moment in the day versus a, a genre or a type of sound. And we try and capture that in all of our material nice. across, you know, whether it's pop or dance or, you know, soundscape, the ambient stuff or like after this emotional atmosphere. And, but it's an aesthetic, it gets expressed in like, you know, the sort of melodic choices that we gravitate to and the visual worlds that we create around the, the material. And, and I want in this noisy world of pop culture, I want when people think casting, I want them to be able to connect the dots. And I want them to like have a visual in their mind and in their like sort of musical soul of what casting stands for and what we represent. I don't want to be everything to all people. I want to be something very specific to a very specific group of fans. So what's, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that you're, you're going here right now. I love, I love like the tone of, of your voice right now. Like, I think a great way to like wrap this is like, and you've touched on this obviously, but like, okay, like next chapter for Cassine, this is your, you know, your adolescent child now. What does it look like? Like who's your, what, what, what is getting you emotional right now for your child? Where do you want it to be? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really want to to scale up where possible. I do awesome. want to see the label take the next jump. You know, we're a team of three. I'd love to be a team of 13 in, you know, three years from now, so to speak. But I also think that, like, our area of expertise is developing artists. I think we're good at taking brand new artists and building an ecosystem around them and plugging them into the industry and helping them, you know, build brand, – brand is the wrong word, but – develop an aesthetic and like, you know, execute that in, you know, the musical ecosystem. So I never want to stop doing that. I'll always work with, with, with baby bands, baby artists, and like take them, help take them from zero to 60. But in tandem with that, I do want to take the artists that we've already brought to 60 and take them, you know, to that next level as well and see the label, you know, enjoy the, the jump, the, the commercial jump from being able to take an artist to that next level which is in a lot of respects, like why I, I admire Glassnote, for example. I feel like, you know, they've taken the Auroras and Eiders. And New Aurora Trek artists, is really like, cool. Not today, actually, whenever it was, Friday. I don't know, what day is it today? I don't know. Yeah, the Thursday. But, yeah. but I mean, I mean, she takes, it's a perfect example of like an artist that could, could like aesthetically speaking be on Cassian. But Glassnode has taken that, like contextualized it in this sort of like elevated way. And, and her numbers are her numbers are big. I mean, she's competitive. She's up there like punching with like other pop stars of the moment. And and I'd love to I can't to be wait able for to her to explode. Yeah. She's to me like probably the most exciting artist ever on Glassnote. And the world just right. hasn't really I think she's already made the the records, you know, like 
some people have been like, oh, she's just, she hasn't made that song yet. And I, I'm like, I don't, I don't really agree. I think some of those songs are just like classics, amazing songs. And I don't yeah. know why it hasn't connected yet. I think it's just our monoculture, but you know, I don't know. I agree. Glad you like Aurora because I, I believe in her so much. Yeah. Yeah. So, so epic and endemic, some of those tunes. So what's an artist I like, okay. So like, so the artist who's listening, what do you, what do you want to see that makes you say, this is coming, this is going somewhere and I want to get involved. What's that email that you get or that, that, that connection that happens that you're like, Oh, I need Cassine to be a part of this artist's story. Yeah. And that's such a, such it's an, an impossible moment. question, but you know, <laughs> but, but I've had so many, I mean, I can look back over the last 10 years and say that like some of my most exciting moments were like, you know, getting those emails from artists or managers, yeah. like listening to those early demos and having my mind blown and like, give us, give me one. Uh, Yumi Zuma, for example, Josh love, Burgess. Love, love, love. And they're early. Like if you go back to Yumi's first EP, I mean, those songs were so sincere and inspired and like, you know, they're not, they're not, there were none of the big pop moments that exist on some of their later material, but it was, that material was just so, it came from such a pure place and those songs were so sound and so cool and so nonchalant and effortless. And in that first track, that song, this is a song called Long Walk Home for Parted Lovers. That song hit my, hit my inbox in like 2013. And instantly, and there was no, there was no text. It was, it was literally a SoundCloud link. Oh yes, yeah? wow. Yeah, it was, a, it was a cute subject line, and then a, and then what was the subject the, line? Do you remember? Something like for Jeff with the heart. Love it. In it. Love it. And it turned out that Josh actually works for Captured Tracks, and we knew each other socially, but I, I didn't know that he was a part of Yumi Zuma. He was doing this all like, you know, in a way that, um, you know, didn't like trade on our friendship. But, uh -huh. but I hit play on that, I hit play on that link. And within the first minute, minute and a half, I knew that like something cool. special was happening. And I, and dude, I was all over them. I mean, I responded with, you know, within five minutes of receiving that. Hmm. And within about 48 hours, I had them on a, on a conference call and tried to figure out what we, what we could do to, to work together. And we started from scratch and like figured out like what, what is the, you know, what is the thrust here? Like, who is, who is Yumi Zuma? How do we want to position this? Like, what are the steps? Like, they were working on an EP. Is there going to be an album to follow it? Like, what's the bigger narrative here? They were a New Zealand band. How are we going to translate that to the States? Is there a live show? We started to flesh out some of those other, like, crucial, crucial elements, but it all started with the material. And, like, right. and those early demos were undeniably good. So just make good music is really all we can rely on, all we can hope for. And be, in, and be inspired by it. Like, let, let me know that you genuinely give a shit and you feel committed to your craft and that you have a vision for, for that craft. Yeah, I mean, I, I always love to share, you know, my the art that I want is art born of suffering that you've experienced, that you process inside, and then you use craft form to go make something that translates it to us so that we can understand. So you've done all this work and then you deliver it to us. And it's not just art of expression, but it's understanding. 
and it's personal understanding that's good art and i think right now is an opportunity to you know really hyper 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 focus on that and yeah that's where i'm going i'm going into all of my all my despair all my translating all the suffering that's what i want to do that's dope you had said (laughs) in that in that that one piece that we talked about a little bit about like create what's essential yeah that that really that really clicked with me when i read it yeah don't make stuff for playlists that are going to feature you for four hours you know that's right make stuff that's going to be important in years and that's it don't make anything else Mm-hmm. And if you need to do other things to figure out how to get, how to make that thing, do it. Change your day. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's, it's, it's why we're in music to begin with. I mean, I never mm-hmm. got music to, for this to be a commercial enterprise. Like music was always about trying to share something that felt so vital, so important yeah. to me with the world in a way that was curated and, intimate and hopefully accessible to people and when it starts becoming about anything besides that is when i'll go back into midtown and get another corporate job i don't think there's room for i think like the way our world is is shifting today is like that's going to be the major labels are going to do what they do and then the rest of the world like there's not going to be room for anything that's not essential and passionate i don't i think it's just going to people are not going to have any time for that. And that's cool. I'm psyched for whatever comes next. I think it's going to be really good. I think we're going to get, I mean, people have been talking about it. Like we're going to get classic album, classic quarantine albums. You know, we're not just going to get like, like Charlie XCX. That's super cool. Like making something, you know, but like, we're going to get, we're going to get more Fiona apples too. Yeah. Yeah. She's incredible. Yeah. All right, man. Well, Yo, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your passion and uh, fighting the good fight. And yeah, man, uh, let's keep talking. And um, I'm sure we'll, I, I, I love, I love getting advice from you because you know, you are in, you're in, you're in the battle. You're in the important battles regularly and people like you are who, you know, build the infrastructure for our creative community and it's incredible and we appreciate you oh yeah i appreciate you saying that we're all doing our part yeah man of course right on dude well good good seeing you and um talk again soon stay safe and best of luck with the new earth theater campaign i can't wait for that to roll out to the world yeah thanks sean appreciate it all right man chat soon peace